Chapters 21 and 22 of The Girl from Malta by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 21. At Marlowe Regatta. Sir Mark Trevor's family mansion, as everyone knows, is in Cornwall, but being passionately fond of the River Thames, he had bought a place down at Hurley, where he passed the summer months and there entertained his large circle of friends. The idle, pleasant life of the river suited the baronet to perfection and being a man fond of books and antiquities he found the neighbourhood quite to his taste much preferring the unpretending house at hurley to his grand hall in cornwall and the pleasant vales and hills of bucks to the wild tors and iron-bound coasts of the west country belfield as it was called the name being an invention of sir mark's happy combination of his daughter's name and the fields which surrounded the house was not a very large place it had originally been a farmhouse and stood near the high road, while beyond arose the sloping hills with a fringe of trees on top, and down towards the river stretched broad fields, all yellow with waving corn. The original portion of the house was built of flint, and Sir Mark had added to it until the whole place looked nothing but a mass of gables covered with trellis-work and overgrown with creeping plants. But a very comfortable house it was the favourite apartment being a kind of smoking-room which opened on to a glass porch, and beyond a wide lawn, a gorse hedge, yellow with blossom, and a view of tall beeches and glimpses of distant hills. The walls of the smoking-room were covered from top to bottom with cartoons from Vanity Fair, only leaving one space where guns, daggers, swords, and other warlike instruments were displayed. Plenty of low basket chairs, soft fur rugs, side-tables with a generous profusion of pipes, tobacco and cigarettes, and on a large table near Sir Mark's writing-desk a spirit-stand always stood ready, together with an unlimited supply of soda and seltzer for thirsty boating-parties. There was a piano in one corner, with piles of new music, principally, it must be confessed, of the comic opera and music-hall orders, and over the piano a fox's head and brush, trophies of Miss Bell's prowess in the hunting-field. Off this snuggery was the saddle-room, which the young men, and indeed not a few of the ladies, used to vote awfully jolly, in the expressive slang of to-day. There were plenty of bedrooms, low-pitched and quaint, wide staircases with unexpected turnings and twistings, and an oak-panelled dining-room, wherein Sir Mark's guests used to wax noisy at meals. But the favourite room of the house was undoubtedly the smoking-room, and in it on this bright July morning all the guests staying at Belfield were waiting ready to start for the Marlow regatta. And a very jovial party they were. Pat Ryan, having returned from the Emerald Isle, was talking his usual nonsense to pretty Kate Lester, who was stopping at Belfield with her uncle, a gentleman who passed most of his time asleep. He had declined to go to the regatta and was already lying in one of the low basket chairs pretending to read the times. Bell was standing by Carmela, who looked pale and white as she listened to Mr. Chester's chatter, giving that brilliant youth the mistaken idea that he had made an impression. Sir Mark was moving about from one to the other, with his grave smile, and two young ladies arrayed in white serge dresses with jaunty straw hats were flirting desperately with a young Oxonian called Welthorpe, but familiarly known as Bubbles from his effervescent flow of spirits. "'We'd better start, I'm thinking,' observed Mr. Ryan to the company. It's a mighty bad thing wasting all this beautiful morning. You won't come, uncle? asked Kate, going over to her avuncular relative. Not to-day, my dear. I'm a little tired. Begad, he's the seven sleepers rolled into one, said Pat to Miss Lester as they stepped out into the sunshine. Come, Miss Lester, I'll ice you for a pair of gloves. 
Against what? asked Kate as he helped her through the gate. A kiss? said Pat, whereupon Kate blushed and vowed she wouldn't run. So Pat set off like a deer by himself along the narrow path which led through the cornfield to the village of Hurley. How sad you are looking, Carmela, said Sir Mark as he walked soberly along beside Miss Cottoner. She wants Mr. Monteith, said Bell mischievously. Nonsense, retorted Carmela, while a flush came over her pale face. Then she'll soon be gratified, laughed Sir Mark, for Mr. Monteith will be at the regatta today. Carmela clenched her teeth. He would be at the regatta, and how would he meet her after all that had passed? The last time she saw him she was free, but now he would see her as the affianced wife of another. Well, she would wait and see. Their meeting must come sooner or later, so why not now? The party went through the quaint village of Hurley past the old Bell Inn with its antique gables and wide windows, through the remains of the old monastery which was one of the finest in England, and along by Lady Bell Place with its old walls and picturesque red roof under which the conspirators of 1688 met to mature their plot for driving James II from his kingdom. Over the bridge they went and found the river crowded with boats, filled with men in flannels and pretty girls in yachting costumes, all waiting for the lock to be opened. Sir Mark's boats were below Hurley Lock, so they all went down, only pausing a moment to look into the lock, filled with boats, and presenting a blaze of colour. A number of young fellows were leaning on the great arms of the lock gate, chattering idle nonsense to the pretty girls in the boats below. I wonder how many engagements these flirtations at the locks have been accountable for, said Pat sentimentally to Kate as he handed her into his boat. I'm sure I don't know, retorted Kate, and a pretty flush dyed her cheek, though to be sure it might only have been the sun shining through her red sunshade. Why do you ask? Because I'd like one more to be added to the number, said Ryan audaciously whereat Kate blushed again and was spared the trouble of answering by Bubbles telling the Irishman to push off and not talk so much. Pat consented with an ill grace, for, versed as he was in affairs of the heart, he saw that Kate knew his feelings and responded to them. Kate and Carmela sat in the stern of the boat, the former steering, while Carmela sat idly gazing at the gay throng on the river, her thoughts far away with Ronald Monteith. They passed Temple Court, embowered among trees, and had to take their turn in entering the lock, which gave Pat and Bubbles lots of opportunity to converse and chaff their friends. Indeed, it was really wonderful how many people these young men knew, and even Carmela smiled as she heard Pat's witty tongue running riot. At last they got into the lock, Bubbles skillfully piloting them, and as the boat sank rapidly to the lower reach, several ladies in the other boat shrieked, but were pacified when the water ceased to fall. Begad, they're as bad as badgies, said Pat, whereon he was once more told to hold his tongue by Bubbles, who was captain, and soon they were out again on the broad river with the roar of the weir in their ears. And would you like to tow down? asked Pat persuasively of Kate. But the young lady declined on the plea of heat, so Pat had to give up his idea of a flirtation on the towing path and work hard instead. There's Bissom said Bubbles as they passed the grey old abbey, where Shelley wrote his revolt of Islam floating in a boat under the beeches. Begad, I hope he had a lady with him, said Pat gaily. There's nothing stirs imagination like a pretty girl. Your imagination is quite vivid enough already, said Carmela. There's Marlow Church and Marlow Bridge, observed Bubbles, still in the character of guidebook. Where the bargees ate puppy pie, 
put in Ryan. But here we are at Shaw's. Shall we go on shore, or stop in the boat? Both ladies preferred to go on shore, so after making the boat fast among all the other crafts, Pat and Bubbles put on their coats and handed the ladies out. Sir Mark's boat was nowhere to be seen, whereupon Pat proposed to go over to the Angler's Hotel and see what was doing there. I believe you want a drink, said Kate severely as they walked over the bridge. And small shame to me, retorted the undaunted Pat. Haven't I rode you down under a blazing sun? I suppose you must be rewarded, said Carmela with a smile. So Pat and Bubbles, nothing loath, went into the quaint inn which bears the sign of the anglers and had two tankards of foaming beer. Xerxes wanted a new pleasure, said Bubbles when he had finished. I'd have given him a thirsty day on the river with a pot of beer handy. Pat laughed at this, and they went out to join the ladies who were seated under one of the big trees talking to two men. Hello, said Bubbles, where did these Johnnies spring from? But Pat did not hear him as he was running towards the taller of the two and was soon shaking him heartily by the hand. My dear Ronald, he said eagerly, how are ye? I'm glad to have a look at ye again, and Foster too. Oh, we are a happy family. But neither Carmela nor Ronald looked very happy. Pat introduced Bubbles, who speedily made himself at home, and both Foster and Ronald declining Mr. Ryan's hospitable invitation to drink, they all went over the bridge again to see the races. A bright day, gaily dressed crowd, the broad blue river crowded with crafts, and the green country and picturesque red-roofed houses on either side, nothing could be more delightful. Pat, Bubbles, and Foster, all ardent boating men, shouted vociferously as the boats went shooting up the stream, their oars flashing in the sunlight. And the cheers that rang through the air when the winning crew won by a boat's length were as hearty for the losers as for the victors. Ronald, however, looked grave and haggard as he stood by Carmela's side watching the races. He kept glancing at her face and saw that she, too, was pale and thin, while everyone else was bright and gay, enjoying the animated scene. Only those two unhappy lovers were brooding over their sorrows. She could not have committed such a crime, thought Ronald, his eyes fixed absently on the bright waters. He can never believe that I am marrying my cousin willingly, she thought with a sigh. He must know that it is to save my sister. I had your letter, said Ronald in a low whisper in her ear. And you understood my reasons, she asked, though her lips grew white. He bowed, thinking she alluded to her crime. Is it true? he asked huskily. Yes, God forgive me it is, she replied, thinking he was referring to her sister's sin. Ronald gave a shudder and turned away as white as a sheet. From her own lips, he muttered. It is impossible. I'll ask her again. Ah, oh, me! How often cross-purposes mar our lives! After that, the party went down to the boats to luncheon, and Sir Mark, delighted to see the young men, asked them to dinner. "'We dine at seven, he said hospitably. "'Where are you stopping?' "'The Crown Hotel,' replied Foster. "'Then you'll come and dine with me tonight,' said Sir Mark. "'Yes,' answered Ronald eagerly, for he thought he then could speak freely to Carmela. "'We shall be delighted.' Foster saw what his friend wanted, so gladly accepted the invitation, the more so, as he felt a decided inclination to improve his acquaintance with Miss Trevor, whose bright eyes had made an impression on his heart. Ronald had no more speech with Carmela that day, and kept aloof from her, a fact she attributed to his knowledge of her engagement with Vassella. 
The rest of the afternoon passed rapidly, and though there was to be a procession of illuminated boats that night, the Belfield party said they would go home and departed up the river in the gathering shadows, Sir Mark's cheery voice being the last heard. Seven o'clock, my boys, he sang out. Not a minute later. 22. THE TESTIMONY OF THE DAGGER Ronald and Foster went up to the Crown Hotel, which is at the top of the principal street in Marlowe, from which point two streets branch off to right and left, one leading to Little Marlowe, the other to the village of Medinham. A quaint battered old obelisk of stone surrounded by an iron railing stands in what is called the marketplace and serves as a signpost. The hotel itself, with its archway in the middle which divides it into two parts, was mostly occupied with boating men in their picturesque flannels, and as the young fellows went upstairs to dress, they saw the bar crowded with thirsty souls. Ronald was ready first, and putting a light coat over his evening dress, went down to order a dog-car to take them to Hurley, and then amused himself by observing the different people with which the place was thronged. Getting tired of this, he strolled through the dining-room to the quaint garden at the back with the red-brick walls, all softened by time and covered with peach-trees. "'It's like the song,' said Ronald, looking at all the harmonious tints softened under the fading twilight of the sky, and he commenced to hum Hope Temple's song, The Old Garden, when he heard Foster calling him and found that gentleman waiting for him in the dog-cart. "'Jump up, my boy,' said Mr. Foster. "'We've no time to lose. It's past six now.' "'All right,' replied Ronald, pulling out his pipe. "'Wait till I light up.' And having done so, he sprang up to the side of his companion, and they were soon spinning swiftly down the high street of Marlowe. "'I know the way,' said Foster. "'So I'll drive.' Ronald nodded by way of response as they went over the bridge, and they saw the river dim and fantastic-looking below, while the lights were twinkling in the windows of the houses, and the air was full of floating shadows. In front arose the great mass of quarry woods, with here and there a tall tree standing out sharply against the clear glow of the sky. An owl hooted in the distance, and then there came the deep sound of a dog's bark as the two young men drove swiftly along. "'Did you speak to Miss Cottoner today?' asked Foster after a pause. "'I did not exactly,' said Ronald hesitatingly, taking the cigar out of his mouth. "'But she asked me if I knew the reason she was marrying her cousin.' I said yes, and asked was it true. And her answer was, God help me, it is true. Huh, said Foster thoughtfully. She might not have been referring to your thought that she killed Verscoil, but to her own, that she marries him to shield her sister. Then you think she is innocent? cried Ronald eagerly. I don't know, replied Foster, but I would certainly give her the benefit of the doubt rather than condemn her unheard. "'Condemn her?' echoed Ronald bitterly. "'God knows I'd give my life to prove her innocent.' "'It won't be required of you, dear boy,' retorted Foster coolly. "'The whole affair seems to be a deuced muddle, "'and it's my opinion that Vassella is at the bottom of it. "'However, we'll see what success you meet with tonight.' "'Ronald did not answer, but gripping his cigar hard with his lips, "'puffed away fiercely.' They drove through the village of Bissom, up the long hill and down through the Temple Park, each absorbed in his own thoughts, until they found themselves in front of Belfield, where a groom was waiting at the gate to take charge of the horse. The two young men alighted and entered the house, where they were welcomed by Sir Mark, who, after they had removed their cloaks, led the way to the smoking-room, where Chester, Bubbles, Pat, and a young Oxonian, by name Hammond, were assembled. 
The ladies were not yet in the drawing-room, so the hospitable baronet proposed a glass of sherry and bitters which was accepted by all the young men, and then they began to talk about the day's regatta, until the servant announced the arrival of the Bishop of Patagonia, his wife, and Mrs. Pellipop. The most stately thing in the world is, undoubtedly, a swan. The next, a bishop. And when the worthy churchman walked in tall and dignified, no one would have thought how he quailed before his mother-in-law. But such is the superior force of women that they can subdue even the haughtiest natures to their yoke, if they go the right way about it. My lord bishop was very affable and very condescending, and when they went to join the ladies in the drawing-room, Pat pronounced him a good sort, and he whose experience was extensive knew a good sort when he saw one. Mrs. Pellipop, tall and majestic in black velvet and lace, Mrs. Bishop, timid and nervous, hid herself under the matrimonial wing, and all the ladies looked even more charming in evening dress than during the day. At the sound of the gong, Sir Mark gave his arm to Mrs. Pellipop. He ought to have done so to the bishop's lady, but then Mrs. Pellipop always insisted on going first. The bishop escorted Miss Trevor as the hostess, and Ronald found himself walking by Carmela. They spoke very little to one another, Carmela talking principally to Bubbles, who sat beside her, and Ronald listening to the talk of a young lady next to him, who was a Girton girl and thought she knew everything, whereas she knew nothing, not even what a bore she was. Ronald thought the dinner was interminable. But it came to an end, as all things must, and the ladies followed Belle out of the room. The gentlemen, left to themselves, waxed merry over their wine but were restrained from transgression by the presence of the bishop, which that astute prelate quickly perceived and left the room, followed by Sir Mark. Truth to tell, both gentlemen were anxious to escape in order to discuss a high church question then vexing the land. "'Mr. Ryan,' said Sir Mark as he left the room, "'you can look after my guests.' "'Faith, I will,' cried Pat, taking the host's chair. "'Now then, boys, feel up, and no heel-taps. "'Ronald, my boy, you're like a death's head.' Pass the claret, and don't be bringing your Egyptian mummies to the feast. Under the influence of Pat, everyone woke up, and the wine was circulated, and also several stories, the morality of which was doubtful. After they had had enough wine, all the gentlemen adjourned to the drawing-room, where they found the Girton girl at the piano, wailing out the last new sentimental ballad called Columbine, which was very milk and watery, but useful in keeping the conversation going. Then Mrs. Bishop tickled the piano in a mild clerical way, playing The Maiden's Prayer, as taught to her by Mrs. Pellipop, who learned it in her youth, somewhere about the reign of George III. Carmela was asked to sing, but refused, whereupon Pat sat down and sang I Love a Lovely Gal, the melody of which brought all sorts of memories to Ronald's heart as he remembered the days on board the Neptune. He looked at Carmela, but saw she had arisen from her seat and had gone out into the moonlight. Ronald sprang to his feet and, snatching up a light cloak, ran out to place it on her shoulders. "'You will catch cold, Miss Cottoner,' he said politely, placing it around her. Carmela accepted his attention passively, and they walked in silence round the house until they came to the lawn. A ruddy glare of light blazed across it, which proceeded through the open door of the smoking-room, and it looked so warm and comfortable that they both moved simultaneously towards it and stepped in. "'It will be warmer here.' said Ronald, ceremoniously removing the cloak from his companion's shoulders, while she knelt in front of the fire and spread out her hands to the blaze. The Australian leaned against the mantelpiece, tall and stately, and looked sadly at the girl at his feet. "'Yes,' replied Carmela slowly. "'It will be. 
Why do you speak to me so coldly? She asked suddenly. How would you have me speak? He said bitterly. You cannot expect me to say much to another man's promised wife. This was brutal. She arose to her feet. I did not expect that from you, she said. You are unjust. I am forced into this. You are not, he began, but she stopped him. I think we will go to the drawing-room, Mr. Monteith, she interrupted. Will you give me your arm? This is a pleasant room, with an effort at gaiety. Yes, very, he replied. They were both acting a part. Look at all these guns and daggers, said Carmela, stopping before them. And there's a stiletto. Get it down, will you, Mr. Monteith? Ronald took down the weapon, overcome with vague emotions. A stiletto, the very weapon she had used to— But no, it could not be true. It's very pretty, said Carmela, taking it to the lamp to examine it. I had one once with an ivory handle, the head of Bacchus surrounded with bunches of grapes. Ronald gave a cry. She was describing the very stiletto by which Verscoil had been killed. Great heavens! Could it be that she was guilty after all? Head of Bacchus, grapes, was, was that yours? He stammered. Yes, she replied, laying down the weapon on the table and looking at him in a puzzled manner. When did you see it last? Oh, not for many years. It has been lost for a long time. Was she trying to shelter herself under the cloak of a lie? Ronald was determined to know the worst. He sprang forward and caught her wrist. She recoiled with a cry of alarm. "'Now tell me the truth,' panted Ronald, his eyes blazing fiercely. "'Tell me the truth. I will not betray you.' "'What do you mean?' "'Did you kill him?' "'Kill him? Whom?' "'Leopold Verscoil.' "'Are you mad?' She flung away his hand and, drawing herself up to her full height, looked like an angry goddess at the man who thus insulted her. But Ronald was too excited to heed her, and his words came pouring out in one torrent. Yes, I am mad. Mad to believe anything against you, who are as pure as an angel. I'm only a poor devil who loves you, and I want you to tell me all you know about this murder so that I can save you. Save me. Murder. She reeled a little and caught hold of the table for support. Look, look cried Ronald, pulling out his pocket-book with the fatal paper which he had brought on purpose. Look here, spreading it out. You're writing. You're writing. Carmela glanced at it, and a film came over her eyes. Yes, it's my writing, seven, seven years ago. Then the stiletto by which he was killed, you have described it. You were on board. You recognized him. I did not. She spoke the words firmly. No. Until you told me the other day who the murdered man was, I had no more idea than you had at Malta that Lionel Benton was Leopold Verscoil. I did write that note when I was mad with the treatment I had received. I was only a girl and acted foolishly as girls will. I did have such a stiletto, but I have not seen it for years. I gave it to my cousin Vassala about five years ago. Vassala! Ronald looked up suddenly. Are you sure? Yes, he took a fancy to it, and I presented it to him. Did you believe me guilty? Suddenly. No, on my soul, I did not. Can I believe you? Yes, appearances were against you, but I swore you were innocent. I told the detective so. Detective? Is a detective employed? Yes. By you? 
Don't deny it. I see it in your face. Oh, God, wringing her hands, what am I to do? You will ruin my sister. Ronald suddenly grew calm. Carmela, you know I love you. Don't speak of love at such a time. I must. I believe I can save your sister. You can? Yes, I think so. She clasped her hands with a gesture of entreaty. Oh, if you only could, she cried passionately. I would not then be forced to marry Vassella. That is one of my reasons for trying to save her, he said. I do not want you to sacrifice yourself in this way. But we must not talk, we must act. And he struck the bell on the table. What would you do? she asked. You must tell my friend Foster all you know about your sister's marriage. He is a lawyer, and he will find a way out of this dilemma. The servant appeared. Tell Mr. Foster to come here. The servant disappeared. How can you save my sister? she asked quickly. Is she innocent? I don't know, he replied evasively. But even if she is guilty, I'll save her. Mr. Foster entered the room. Well, said that gentleman, what's the matter? Miss Cottoner would like to tell you a story, said Ronald quietly. Carmela sat down and so did Foster, who was now all attention, while Ronald leaned against the mantelpiece and listened eagerly. This, thought Foster as he settled himself, is the beginning of the end. End of chapters 21 and 22